Greetings and welcome to another Different Church Podcast. My name is Jarrett and I hope that you are having an awesome day. Uh, I'm recording this on a Sunday night. We had a really incredible morning. It was kind of a day of celebration. Uh, A couple of our band members are going to be stepping away for just a little while to do some traveling. And so we just kind of honored them today, celebrated them. And our amazing pastor uh, is great with child, (laughs) as uh, you know, it says in the Bible. Um, She had a baby shower yesterday. And we kind of continued the love today a little bit. And um, Taylor, who is awesome, made some desserts. We had some balloons. Thanks to all the volunteers uh, who helped out. Shout out to Anthony and Amber. And anybody I'm forgetting, shout out to Bree for helping to organize stuff. Um, You guys just did a really cool job. That's one of my favorite things so far about our little community is to see how we care. Um, It's cool whenever something goes right or wrong in a somebody's life in our church we're able to walk through it with them um we're able to celebrate together we're able to pray together uh it's easy for us to grab a greeting card and and throw some some nice words down to make people feel good and uh, i love being able to do that um so thank you to everyone who participated you are about to listen to one of my favorite messages of hannah's so far i know it's a joke that i say that every week but i can't help it she's awesome um I was tempted to call this get it together church because it's like a critique of the church and it's really easy to throw stones at churches that you don't like or things in the culture that you see that you don't love. Uh, But we need to remember that we are also uh, a part of that and we are not immune from being critiqued and checked. So instead I'm going to call it get it together us because we are a part of the church culture that sometimes needs critiquing. So that's what Hannah is going to be talking about today. Um, don't forget, next week, the first, we're going to be doing some stand-up comedy performed by Jesus. The band is going to be doing some awesome stuff. We are doing a costume contest that day. We're passing out candy. It's a um, We're going to gain an hour of sleep. So it's going to be a really incredible week. I hope to see you there. It's going to be awesome. Speaking of awesome, here is Get It Together, Us. Let's see. This morning we get to talk about one of my favorite things. Critiquing the church. I'm just kidding. <laughs> that, it is actually the topic for today, but um, I'm very good at this. I don't, it's like one of my special skills, complaining, um, pointing out when things are wrong, uh, especially with the church. And I used to go out of my way to do such things until, you know, God was like, cut it out. You're being a terrible person. So it's not the complaining that's bad. It's the not doing anything about what you're complaining about. But we are going to read a passage in the New Testament where Jesus is telling a story, and the entire point of the story is critiquing the church, (laughs) and specifically the religious leaders. And it's important to know this going in, because if we just read the story by itself, it's kind of odd and a little bit horrifying. Now, our passage comes from Matthew, which is in the New Testament, chapter 21, and it's a parable that Jesus told. So a parable is a short story to illustrate a moral or spiritual point, kind of like a fairy tale or anything you tell your kids, you give an example, like all the kids' books. Some kind of moral or spiritual point is being illustrated. And this parable is the second in a series of three parables that Jesus tells in the temple. 
in Jerusalem. So the time frame for this is Jesus is very close to dying. So for context, if you've been around during Easter at all, this happens right after Jesus rides into Jerusalem on a donkey and the crowds go crazy and they give him like palm fronds to walk on and everyone loves him so much, big party. And then he goes to the temple and he promptly turns over tables and drives people out that are changing money and doing all kinds of stuff. And now he's just hanging out in the temple surrounded by some regular people and a bunch of religious leaders, probably a lot of Pharisees, a lot of Sadducees. Those were the religious leaders of the day. And the difference between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, there's many differences, but this is an easy way to remember. The Sadducees did not believe in the resurrection. So they were very sad, you see. (laughs) Yes, that was worth my entire seminary education. The, Pharisee, the Sadducees were like the rich people. They were the elite religious class. So they were the ones who ran the temple, pretty much. The Pharisees were like regular pastors. They would be out in the towns. They'd be in the local synagogues. They were the people's religious leaders. So both of them are there. And Jesus is telling stories. He's a very magnetic person. People are always listening to him. So the first story he tells is about two kids. And the dad is like, hey, I need you to go do some work for me. And the first kid is like, I'm definitely not doing that. But then later he changes his mind and he's like, okay, I'll do it. And he does. And the second kid is like, of course, I would love nothing more than to do this work for you. But then he never does it. This parable is about how the people that you think are not accepted are in fact the blatant sinners, like the tax collectors and the prostitutes and things like that. They're going to make it into the kingdom of heaven before the religious leaders Because they initially said no, but then they end up saying yes. And the people who said yes at the beginning say no. The second parable is ours, which we'll get to in a second. And the third parable is about a great party, and it has a very prestigious guest list. And everyone is just going to be the most fabulous party of all time. But then it comes time for the party, and every single person on the list who got a special invite makes some lame excuse and doesn't show up. So the person throwing the party sends out his servants, to everywhere. Like, gather all the people. doesn't matter what race they are, what class they are, if they're rich, if they're poor, if they're female, if they're kids. doesn't matter. Get everybody to come to the party. And that parable is about how everyone is welcome, but the people who were specifically invited at the beginning blew it off and didn't show up. Remember that Jesus is in the temple for this. So all of these parables and the fact that he flipped over tables and made a scene and generally caused a lot of property damage. This is the reason that he is killed. Now, in my opinion, there's many reasons where the religious leaders don't like him. But one of the main specific points why he dies is because the entire temple, the entire Jewish religious system is built on sacrifices. You have to get your animals, you have to sacrifice them. There's smoke that's going up from the temple and the fires constantly. It never stops. And when he turns over all the tables and makes this huge scene in the temple, people can't buy their animals because they're coming from all over Israel to get their animals, make the sacrifices that they do every year. And of course, it's Passover time, so everybody's doing the thing that they're supposed to do. And now... Nobody has their animals. Nobody can make sacrifices. The smoke stops. The actual entire religious process that a nation is founded on stops. That's a problem. 
Not for Jesus. Well, it is a problem for Jesus because the religious leaders are like, we got to get rid of this guy. So this all should be in our mind before we think about this parable. So we're going to pick up in chapter 21, verse 33. Yes, 21. I didn't write it down. (laughs) So this is what Jesus says. Now listen to another story. It just sounds so nice, doesn't it? Jesus telling stories. No. A certain landowner planted a vineyard. He built a wall around it, dug a pit for pressing out the grape juice, built a lookout tower, and then he leased the vineyard to tenant farmers and moved to another country. At the time of the grape harvest, he sent his service to collect his share of the crop. But they grabbed his servants, they beat one up, they killed one, and they stoned another. Harsh. So the landowner sent a larger group of servants. But the results were the same. Finally, he sent his son, thinking, surely they will respect my son. But when the tenant farmers saw his son coming, they said to one another, here comes the heir to this estate. Let's kill him and get the estate for ourselves. So they dragged him out of the vineyard and murdered him. What a delightful story to tell in church. (laughs) That's just, I mean, I'm telling it in church, but so was Jesus. He's in the temple. So let's think about this. A landowner builds a vineyard. Cool. Makes it awesome. He rents it out to some people. He doesn't want to work the grape fields. He's like, you can work the grape fields. You can have part of the harvest. You can live here. But you know, I own it. So you have to give me some. I'll be back. Peace out. So then he sends a few of his employees to collect. But they beat them up and kill one. Bold move. So the landlord is like, okay, I must not have sent enough. Three people to collect my share must not be enough, people. I will send a large group of my employees and their safety in numbers. But the farmers are apparently very strong from tending grapes, I don't know, and they do the same thing. They beat them up. And finally, the landlord sends his son. They they wouldn't dream of doing anything to his son, right? He has ambassador's immunity. If they do something to his son, they're signing their own death warrant. Like, surely when this guy's son shows up, they're going to be like, oh, we're in serious trouble. Not only is here's your share, here's extra. Please don't come do anything awful to us. But instead, they drag him out of the vineyard and they kill him. Yay. (laughs) Can you imagine? (sighs) But remember, this is a story with, like, deep religious meaning. So... Jesus is talking to the religious leaders. This is a metaphor. So who were the tenant farmers? We know. Because we are removed. The religious leaders, they have no idea what's going on. Obviously, it's them. (laughs) He's talking, he's like, you're the tenant farmers. Who were the first groups of the servants, of the employees who show up? The prophets that God kept sending to Israel and they kept rejecting in the Old Testament. Who's the son? Sure, you can like get where we're going with this. It's Jesus. (laughs) He's referring to his own death that is imminent. But the religious leaders, they don't know. They're clueless. They're like, wow, what an interesting story Jesus is telling us. So he continues. When the owner of the vineyard returns, what do you think he will do to these farmers? And the religious leaders replied, he will put the wicked men to a horrible death. And he will lease the vineyard to others who will give him a share of the crop after each harvest. They're very indignant. Indignant. And then Jesus asked them, didn't you ever read this in the scriptures? The stone that the builders rejected 
has now become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It's wonderful to see. I tell you, the kingdom of God, this is where Jesus is getting serious. The kingdom of God, I hope he raised his voice because I am, will be taken away from you and given to a nation that will produce the proper fruit. Anyone who stumbles over that cornerstone will be broken to pieces and it will crush anyone it falls on. And when the leading priests and the Pharisees heard this parable, they realized, finally, that the story was about them. They were the wicked farmers. And they wanted to arrest him, but they were afraid of the crowds who considered Jesus to be a prophet. So Jesus is like setting a trap for them. I don't understand why they're so dense, honestly. Like, he already had a parable where the religious leaders were awful. And now we're in another parable, and he's setting them up and they still have no idea that he's talking about him or them. So they're so clueless, they're very upset by this story. They're like, how dare these farmers who they don't even own the land, how could they possibly treat the employees of the landlord this way? How dare they kill his son? What should happen to them? They must be punished to the full extent of the law. Off with their heads. And they even say it. When the landlord hears of this, he's going to put them to death. What a, he's going to come with a whole army. It's his right. How could they possibly do this? They're just so self-righteous. They must have the correct answer, right? Clearly, the landlord's going to give those awful farmers what they deserve, and justice will be served, and they will have had the right answer, and everybody will be happy. And then Jesus suddenly flips the table on them. It says the stone the builders rejected has now become the cornerstone. Basically, Jesus is saying flat out, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to someone else. Can you imagine? Like, can you imagine if we were sitting there and Julie was like, Hannah, God is going to take the kingdom of God away from you and give it to someone else. Doesn't mean... And this is in front of everyone. He's talking to the religious leaders and there's a bunch of regular people there who like follow them. It's very embarrassing. Not only will the kingdom of God be taken away from you, but your willful ignorance and resistance against it will break you apart. You will think you're doing the right thing, but the kingdom of God will not be with you you will be crushed and destroyed by the very thing you attempted to hoard for yourself. And then finally, they realize he's talking about them. They're like, oh, oh. Hey. <laughs> They're a little more upset than that, <laughs> I would imagine. <laughs> They're the wicked farmers. Jesus is saying God has sent messengers to them in the past and... God is sending them his son right now. And how could God, how could Jesus possibly accuse them of such things? After all, they are the religious leaders. If anyone knows where God is, it's them, right? If anyone knows what the Bible says, it's them. They have studied. They have grown up in church. They know all the songs. They know all the things to say. They know how to pray. They know all the stuff. People follow them. They're so mad. They actually want to arrest Jesus like right on there on the spot. Um, but there's a bunch of people around 
and they're a bunch of chickens, so they don't. It says they're afraid of the crowds. They're literally afraid that there's going to be a riot if they have arrest Jesus. And if you keep reading, when they actually finally get around to arresting Jesus, it's in the middle of the night in like a field when no one is around. It's cowards. So it's interesting that through all three parables that Jesus tells, Jesus is not condemning the entire nation of Israel. He's actually just talking to the leaders of the church. All the people that to the church to the temple, to the religious leaders are not welcome, which is the blind and the lame, the sick of any kind, and the prostitutes and the tax collectors and anyone who has sin in their life and anyone who maybe just even can't afford to make the right sacrifice at the temple. Those people actually recognize who Jesus is and they're doing their best to follow. Even though the religious leaders are like, no, you're doing it wrong. All of these people are actually welcomed into God's kingdom. They're trying. They're hoping. They're believing. They're doing their best. The religious leaders are just over here judging and plotting and being mad and ignoring everything that God's trying to tell them. And Jesus is accusing them of failing entirely to produce the fruits of the kingdom, which is just like such a churchy way. The fruits of the spirit. Okay, so this is what this means. If we say as a metaphor, the religious leaders are a grapevine, they don't have any grapes. What's the point? You're not fulfilling your purpose. I planted you so we could get grapes, so we could get wine. Wine is awesome. You don't have no grapes. I gave you years. I gave you many growing seasons. I've given you fertilizer. I've given you water. I've tended to you. I've hired people to tend to you. I've done everything I can possibly do to get you to produce grapes, and all you have is leaves. You look like you ought to produce grapes. But there's there's literally no proof. You could be a weed. That's what you are, essentially. You're not fulfilling your purpose. You're just a weed. I mean, that's what weeds are, right, in gardening. Not like I know a lot about gardening. I mean, I do kill every plant. But a weed is just something that you don't want there, right? It's the thing you didn't plant that's taking over. But they're a weed because they haven't fulfilled their purpose. And their lives are proving nothing about the faith that they claim at all. Now, John Calvin, who's this major theological person in the Middle Ages, he noted that we should just expect people, especially religious leaders, to try and hinder the kingdom of God. I'm sure many of us have experience with this. And it would be so easy to point fingers. (laughs) But... As always, we kind of have to examine our own lives first. Because anytime, because what, what do you tell like kids, right? Anytime you do this, how many fingers are pointing back at you? More. <laughs> so why? We have to think about this. Why is it so easy for churches to treat entire groups of people like they're disposable? How is it possible that the church has been on the wrong side of so much history? Like, on the one hand, the answer is easy. The church is full of humans, and humans are... (laughs) Amen. (laughs) If you're you're watching on the interweb, Jarrett said the worst, and that is true. (laughs) I wouldn't say humans are always the worst, but we are certainly capable of being the worst. So this is an easy answer. Church is full of humans. Humans capable of being the worst. 
What do you expect? But on the other hand, the answer is a lot more difficult, right? Because it's easier to believe a set of rules than it is to interact with the world. It's easier to be like, this is how we do this. There's no question. It's black and white. There's no, you, you can't question any of this. This is just what you do in a situation until you're in that situation and you have to actually interact with the world. It's easier to build walls than it is to open up your arms. It's easier to separate into us and them because that's clearly defined. At least we know where we stand. And I think that's a problem. I mean, it's a problem on many levels, but it's a problem especially for adults. Because when you're a kid, sometimes you need concrete thinking. Something either is this way or it is not this way. That's how kids process information. Adults can go beyond that. This is what, somewhere in the Bible, it says, you grew up, quit drinking milk, eat real food, use your brain, <laughs> essentially. Stop needing such concrete thinking. You have to actually interact with the world and see how it matters. And how did Jesus come into the world? As a person. That's the key. When we are looking for the kingdom of God, when we're looking for the gospel, we have to remember that the gospel comes to us as a person and when God comes to us as a person and we turn away, we're actually rejecting the very thing that we claim to know, which is faith. Jesus says elsewhere in the New Testament, whatever you do for the least of these people, you do for me. Why? Because the gospel comes to us as a person. And sometimes we just get so caught up in what we believe or what we ought to believe that we forget entirely what Jesus looks like. We just get so puffed up in how right we are that we forget how much God has done for us. We forget the magnitude of what God has saved us from. We lose our grip entirely on the grace that has kept us going for so long and we just start closing doors. Not for you, not for you, not for you. You can't come in here. You can't do that. You can't look like that. You can't talk like that. You can't believe that. You can't, you can't, you can't. And I know our first instinct when I say things like that is to be like, ah, yes, I have had such experience with other churches who do this. Let me point out all the ways other churches have harmed me, which is valid. But that's too easy. We have to look at ourselves first before we look at anyone else. Where are we? So yes, like different church is inclusive and affirming and we are doing, trying our hardest to make a space where all people can explore faith together. But where are our blind spots? Who are the people we want to keep out? Who are the people we really don't want to give grace to? We really don't want to accept. We really just don't even want to deal with them. Maybe, especially this time of year, maybe you got some conservative family members you just don't want to deal with. Maybe you got some friends and you're like, I just don't want to deal with you. But how did the kingdom of God come to us as a person, as all the other people around us, can we get to the point where we can like look at another person no matter who they are or what they are doing 
and see that that is an opportunity for us to be the kingdom of God to them and to actually treat them like Jesus would treat them. I heard something on a podcast a while ago that like hit me pretty intensely and I'm paraphrasing. I can't even remember who said it. The sentiment stuck with me. But it went something like this. So this person calls their pastor mentor and they're like, I have this thing. I think God wants me to do this thing. Need some advice. And the pastor says this. Someday you are going to come to me and tell me God has called you to do something. And I'm going to tell you you're going too far. That can't possibly be God. But listen, it is God and you better do it. I heard that like right before we started Different Church. Because I can't tell you how many people were like, that's too far. You can't do that. That's not God. But listen to me. It is God and you have to do it. And I like, I wonder what's going to be the thing that trips me up? Like which one of you is going to come to me at some point you're going to be like, I like have this thing. I'm really excited about it. I want to do it. I feel like God is in this. And I'm going to be like, that's too far. Can't handle it. We're going to have some rules here. I mean, hopefully that doesn't happen for like a long time, if ever. But you need to know and remember that our duty, our sacred duty, is not to a system of beliefs. It is to a person who showed up for us when we really did not deserve it. When we were the worst. I mean, still sometimes we're the worst. And yet God is here with us. God made human. Emmanuel, God with us. How can we embody that? Just treat every person with love. With to be the gospel. If we can be the gospel... This is the only way people change. It's the only way we got here. People had probably too much patience with us. What a privilege. So, I'm just putting it out there. I hope I never say to you, that's, not, that's too far. That's not God. We can't do that. But if I do, just do it anyways. I'm giving you permission. And this week, like especially this week and next week and the few weeks after, we've got a mildly significant thing happening in our country. (laughs) Try to be like Jesus to other people, even if they're frustrating, even if you want them to say something differently to you, if they want them to believe differently, the only way people change is by interaction with other people, by confronting things that maybe they don't want to confront. So ask God to give you patience. Ask God to give you extra love, like an overabundance of love for someone. Ask God to remind you that we're not so perfect either (laughs) and we need a little help keep us from judging each other 
May we remember the magnitude of what God is saving us from every moment. Let's pray. Take heart, people of faith. We are not wandering aimlessly. It is the kingdom of God that we pursue. The path does not need to be clear. We don't need to fear if we wander off of it or we stray because love will be our ever-present guide, calling us with patience and with truth. And as we go together, we practice healing. We keep learning. We keep unlearning. We right our wrongs. We set down our defenses willingly. We set down our power. We set down our closed-minded thinking. And we open our hands. God of deliverance, when we feel crushed or overwhelmed or in despair, remind us that we are so far from helpless and we are never without hope. Reassure us now and every day that the spirit of Christ, the power of the resurrection and the hope of love eternal is alive in us. Amen.